You are listening to the Zen Nova Scotia podcast with talks by Cone Franz. These talks are made possible in part by generous donations from our listeners. To find out how to support and take part in our community, visit zennovascotia.com. I want to try a little exercise. Just the way you're sitting now, it doesn't matter if you're sitting in a formal posture or not. Just put your hands on your belly. And then I, I want you to breathe. Just breathe, but I want you to breathe with no pretense at all. I want you to breathe in a completely natural way. Nothing extra. As soon as I added that little extra rule, I saw some people smile. I ruined it. (laughs) (laughs) There's a phenomenon that probably everyone is familiar with. I feel painfully familiar with it, where I'm I'm walking uh, in maybe a department store, something that has some mirrors in unexpected places. And maybe I'm by myself just musing about the world or maybe I'm, I'm with someone and we're talking. And, and for just a moment, I catch a glimpse of myself when I didn't expect to see myself there. And without exception, my response is, whoa, do I look like that? Is that what I look like when I laugh? Wah. Right? Is that my is that my just walking around face? It, and then the rest of the time that I'm in that store, I can't do it anymore. I'm I'm now I'm conscious of something else. I'm conscious somehow of being watched, even though I'm I'm not. And I'm thinking about how I look. And the next time someone tells a joke, uh, <laughs> right? And I think, maybe that looks better. Maybe that's a natural way to laugh. It's a disaster. I received a suggestion today, to, or for today, to talk about the topic of ordinariness, which is a great topic. But the more I think about it, the more I see how slippery it is. This practice for me from the beginning has been in many ways that experience of seeing that mirror. Not, you know, I I think we have an idea and some of the language of the tradition and of of other traditions within Buddhism really um, pushes this idea that yes, we're looking into a mirror but we're, we're kind of staring ourselves down in a mirror. You know, it's very profound. And we're going to see something in that mirror that goes beyond the surface of it. We're going to see something very deep. But the reality is that, that what, we, what we glimpse is not so much that thing behind the eyes as that that face that we didn't know we had 
And then we suddenly have a new question, a question that we didn't have before, about how, how am I holding myself in the world? How do I want to hold myself in the world? We just sit. We say, just sit. But it's not just sitting. Once a month, we spend 20 minutes describing this process of how to sit as if it's hard. And then we get there and we find that it's difficult to breathe. Even though breathing is, again, it's the thing we're the very best at. But then it's forced. It's not forced because there's anything about this posture that makes it hard. It's forced because now we're seeing ourselves in the mirror doing it. And then we stand up and we walk in kinhin, and it's the same. We're just walking in slow motion. It should be so natural. But it's the furthest thing from natural. Every single step uses the whole brain. <laughs> Where do I put my foot now? As if we've never done it before. It's kind of cruel. And, and I want to acknowledge, I don't know if anything I say tonight will actually address the, the question behind the, the recommendation of ordinariness. But I, I think on some level, I, I, I understand for myself anyway, that there's a, there's a kind of trap or there's a kind of, there's a door within this practice toward being special. And we sense that. And it might even be what brings us to this in the beginning. I think especially for uh, because we're in a culture that isn't a Buddhist culture. There's something exotic. There's something a little bit new. We might get to have some knowledge that other people don't have. In, in certain parts of the larger tradition, we might get to have a really special relationship with a special teacher. We might receive special teachings. We might be entrusted with special roles. If we stick around long enough, we might get promoted, right, in various ways. We might even be told from the beginning that what we're looking at in that mirror is something that's very, very special, that's really, really good. We need to look at it hard enough so that we can see the goodness of it. So that we can, if we're not careful, we can spend our whole lives either pursuing or basking in the specialness of the whole thing. It's great. It's like this wonderful coat we get to put on sometimes. The danger is there. But here we find ourselves in a tradition that, that really wants to speak against that to the point that it puts us in a bind. How can we be ordinary 
how can we be natural when everything about this practice seems to be asking us not to be? I want to offer first up my sympathy. (laughs) Because all of that is real and there's no easy way out. This, this moment opens up to us. We, we catch that glimpse in the mirror. Or if we're doing this practice regularly, we start catching that glimpse over and over. And we can't unsee it. When I was a kid, maybe, I don't know, nine or ten, I think I've told this story before. I have no idea how I used to laugh. But I had a laugh that apparently was a little bit irritating. (laughs) I I don't know. And and because it was the 70s or the 80s, there are no recordings of this, (laughs) as there would be now, because now it would be all over social media. But my mother, who had no intention of saying anything harmful to me, started to let me know that I had an irritating laugh, that maybe I needed to know this. And it really was, it was very painful for me, not only because my mother was telling me I was irritating, but because I was maybe 10 years old. So I knew I'd been irritating everyone for 10 years and no one had said a word, or that was the message I got. It it was very hard for me. And I I very quickly, overnight, I I lost how to laugh. I was determined not to laugh in the irritating way, but I didn't know how to laugh like a real, like I was supposed to laugh. And so someone would tell a joke, and every time I laughed, it would come out different. I didn't know what to do. So, you know, (laughs) ah! I I couldn't figure it out. And I remember, you know, from the end of elementary school, probably into the beginning of junior high school, this awkwardness around laughing, where I, I still laughed, but it always, it always felt like, like I, it was something I was failing at. You know, and then at some point I I let go of it. And at some point I just developed a laugh and it wasn't the laugh that I had before. And it wasn't the laugh that I had chosen from the buffet of different laughs. I just, I just settled into something and my mom didn't say anything about it. (laughs) And, and so here I am today. This is how I laugh. But There was no way from the moment she said it, and she had no idea, of course, at the time, from the moment she said it, there was no going back. There was no way for me to wake up the next morning and not be self-conscious about this thing. From that moment forward, the only possibility was for me to come out on some other side to come out different. And and for that to be my journey toward ordinary. Mm -hmm. This is how it is for everything we do. If we're paying attention in our lives, we have a pre, 
And then we have a, an unsettled moment. <laughs> and then we have whatever it is that we come to. That unsettled moment is not fun. <laughs> that unsettled moment is, in my understanding, basically the point of Zen. <laughs> Zen is telling you, your laugh is weird. Right? Not because it is, but because that pulls a rug out. Mm -hmm. It takes you out of an ordinary that is unconscious and invites you into this, this inquiry. <laughs> This noticing, this painful noticing. Dogen talks about how, I don't remember if he's describing the practice itself or if he's describing the relationship with a teacher, or, but he, he talks about walking in the mist. You know, that if you just walk in the mist long enough, at some point you realize you're soaked. It's very natural. It's, it's, it's unnoticeable as it's happening, and yet it's, it's total. It goes all the way to the skin. We have these experiences like this. You know, marriage can be one of them. It changes you. It's a container. You walk in and, and something is transformed and you don't have to notice it while it's happening, right? Because the container is powerful enough that you don't have to, you don't have to ask anything of it. So that you walk into that container hating avocados. And a few years later, you find that you're putting avocados on everything. Because the person you married always loved avocados. And suddenly, somewhere halfway through, you discovered that avocados are the greatest thing in the world. It, it doesn't have to be a choice. Right? Children can be like this. The before... And the, and the during are unrecognizable to one another. And yet there's no point in the middle when you have to choose. You, know? you wake up one day and you're someone who changes diapers the same way that you walk down the street. It's just, it's nothing, right? It's like someone who can play an instrument very, very well and do it unconsciously while they're doing something else. Right. It doesn't feel like something is happening to you. You're just responding to your environment and, and you're coming out somehow different. It's, it's easy. Right? Living in a foreign country can do that. And, and what I'm getting to is that this tradition historically has this container of a monastery which does that. You agree to go, and then you don't have to agree to anything else. 
It's not that that container teaches you to walk correctly or to sit correctly or to breathe correctly or to laugh correctly or to speak correctly. What it does is it offers a response to the question of how do I really do this? It offers one. And you internalize that response and you integrate that response. And then when you walk back out, now you have at least two ways. Both of which feel completely ordinary. The difficulty that, that we have here, that almost everyone has, is that we don't have that container necessarily. We don't have that offer of a response. What we do is we enter into this practice and we catch that glimpse and something is pulled out and then nothing steps in to say, try this instead. So we flounder a little bit. There's an awkwardness. It's, it's, a, very, it's a very privileged and a very uh, convenient thing to do to take up some sort of immersive practice, right? Whatever it is, it's choiceless. It's simple. Whatever that ordinary is, is ordinary. I think we want, because I know I've always wanted, we want somehow to live without pretense. We want things to be seamless, right? We want our response not only to be ordinary, but to be right. It's easy in a tradition like this one that is, in a sense, still foreign and is... uh, What's the word I'm looking for? Ornamented in so many ways, from the clothes to the way we chant to, if we get into the architecture of it, that, all of it. It's easy to feel swallowed up in the pretense, right? Or it's easy to feel that we're being offered a response, but that the response is a false one. That it's put on. That it's somehow not, not mine. That's all completely valid. Those concerns are completely valid. And I'll say I have wondered many times over the years if, you know, I have these days where I think, well, maybe maybe the most honest thing to do would be for me to disrobe 
and just act like a normal person. Maybe this is not the most integrated way to practice. And some people do that. I get that. But for me, one, this is ordinary. It became ordinary. The fact that it's not ordinary in the larger sense really doesn't matter. And it serves as a reminder to me of that, that glimpse in the mirror. You know, it serves, it serves a purpose. But what I, what I want to say, I guess, is that is that the tradition that creates the container that holds the practice is not itself the practice. Right. Zen could look like a lot of different things. It just happens to look like this. Don't worry about Don't worry if it feels as if the tradition is trying to teach you to laugh in a particular way. (laughs) It can feel like that. But underneath that, there's a deeper and quieter goal of just creating a space in which you figure out how to laugh. (laughs) Creating an opportunity for you to come out the other side. It's a really, it's a really subtle point. And I've probably said too much, so I'll stop. For more information about Zen, our practice, and how you can support and take part in our community, please visit zennovascotia.com.